Morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. I titled this sermon, God or Greed? I think it'll be obvious when we read the text why. Uh, But Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19. If you are physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. (laughs) That gives me permission to read. And so (laughs) the Lord Jesus, starting in verse 19, says this. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much this morning that we're able to gather together and and just sing your praises and pray together and shortly take the Lord's Supper together, but also to be able to open your word and read your word, and see what you have for us in your word. So I pray, God, that you would give us all eyes to see, and ears to hear, and hearts to receive what's in your word. God, this is a very important passage that really calls out our loyalties. And so, Lord, I pray that we, again, would see it and receive it. I pray you would remove me as much as possible, God. I pray that your people would be edified by your word. And I pray that if there's anybody that doesn't know you, they'll be saved by hearing the good news of your word, God. And so we just pray all these things and pray that you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Can, Can a person truly serve two masters? Based on what we just read, Jesus said no. But I'm pretty sure most of us can think of people who have two jobs. I have two jobs. I work for Sovereign Way Christian Church, and I work for the United States Army Reserves. I believe I serve both of them faithfully. So is Jesus wrong here about not being able to serve two masters? No, not at all. See, Jesus isn't talking about having two jobs or waiting on two tables or splitting your obligations between various people. He's talking about something far more fundamental. Whether we like it or not, we are all slaves of something. And so the question is, can we have two masters? In other words, Jesus is talking about either completely belonging to God or completely selling yourself over to the temporary things of this world. These are two opposing things. You cannot belong to both. A person, for example, can have dual citizenship in the U.S. and in the U.K., but no one can serve as an officer in the United States Army and the People's Liberation Army of China. It's just not going to happen. No one can be a loyal citizen of Israel and a card-carrying member of Hamas. See, these are mutually exclusive. To belong to one means to be opposed to the other. That is the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about in our text this morning. 
Every single one of us, we are being pulled in two opposing directions. We are either moving towards the lure of wealth and possessions and living for this world, or we are moving toward God Almighty and the perfect world to come. But you cannot be moving towards both. That's what's impossible. And so it's that simple. Now, in our society, this is an even more pronounced struggle than it is for others because we're the wealthiest people who have ever lived. We are a comfortable people and we increasingly increase our comfort. And so the pull towards mammon and money is great indeed for many of us. Well, Jesus speaks straight to the struggle that is in our hearts. In this text, he speaks right at it. And so the point of the text is this for the note takers. Real simple. You can either serve God or money, but not both. That's what Jesus is saying. You can either serve God or money, but not both. Well, why not? Jesus shows us why not in three real simple parts, okay? First, Jesus will show us that you love what you treasure. You love what you treasure. Number two, you live for what you love. So you love what you treasure, you live for what you love, and number three, you are the slave of the one for whom you live, okay? So you love what you treasure, you live for what you love, and you're the slave of the one for whom you live. It's that simple. When you take these three things together, it is clear that you could either serve God or money, but not both. We need to overwhelmingly choose one over the other. Now, as we get into our text this morning, it's important to know where we're at in Matthew. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most famous and impactful sermon ever preached in all of history. And in this sermon, the Lord is telling his disciples how to be people who flourish in this world. Now, I'm sure you've noticed we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount pretty slowly in order to truly understand what the Lord is teaching us. This morning, we're moving to a new subject in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it has everything to do with how we are with our wealth and our possessions. Really, it comes down to this. Do you own your possessions or do your possessions own you? That's really what this text is, is getting at. Now, the subject naturally flows out of what Jesus has already taught us so far. Remember, he told us that we flourish by living with wisdom in this age as we're placing our final hope in the perfect age to come. Now, to live that way means that our mind is focused on eternity even right now. Our prayers, according to the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, are entirely focused on God's name being honored everywhere as holy. Our greatest thought is to imagine the kingdom coming in fullness where God's will is always done on earth exactly like it's done in heaven. That's what we're supposed to be starting our prayers off with. And listen, when that day comes, our faith will be sight. We will see God with our eyes. We will have resurrection bodies that cannot die, and they also can't sin. So we won't be worrying about food. We won't be worrying about forgiveness. There's no powerful enemy that we will have to pray that we be delivered from. Things will be perfect, and it will last forever. Now, since we know that's what's coming, it means we don't have to live as if this world and its things are all we got. Because if you live like this is all we got, then you're not focusing on eternity. So if we do focus on eternity, we can enjoy what we have now as we use them in service of that age to come. Now, we do that, according to the Sermon on the Mount, by living as God's salt and light in the world. That way we show the lost just how wise it is to live according to God's perfect law. 
And how do we live according to God's perfect law? Jesus said at the heart level. We, we internalize God's law in our heart, so we keep it in our heart. That way we also keep it on the surface. In addition to that, what we saw in the last few sermons is we devote ourselves to God with our personal acts of piety. Things like giving to the poor. Things like praying and fasting. We give, we pray, and we fast as pilgrims that recognize we're vulnerable right now. So we do these good things, but this isn't our home. We're pilgrims, we're vulnerable, and so we pray to God, we beseech him to grant us our daily bread, to forgive us of sins constantly, and to protect us from the evil one and his minions. But even as we do that, even as we pray that, we still do so with our gazes set on the glorious future that he's promised us. And what that means is we can hold our possessions with a very loose grip, knowing that this world is not permanent. That's all what Jesus has covered so far. And so naturally, all of that then bleeds into how we are supposed to be with our wealth and our possessions. See, Jesus told us to pray today for our daily bread or our tomorrow's bread. And because of that, we should not have anxiety about our needs because we can trust the God who controls all things. Yet, when it comes to our possessions, when it comes to our daily bread, we tend to have anxiety. And that's what the next text is going to talk about, verses 25 through 34. We're not supposed to be anxious because we're praying for our daily and tomorrow's bread, yet people still get anxious anyway. So Jesus is going to tell us to knock it off, but that's in the next passage. Before he gets to that, though, before he gets to why we should not be worrying and why flourishing people won't be worrying over these things, he first tells us how we need to think about wealth and how we need to think about possessions in light of what he's already been teaching us. That's what the text this morning is all about. As I said a few minutes ago, he, ad he addresses this in three sections. And I want you to understand this. In each section, he's telling us there's two kinds of people. It's really like the Old Testament wisdom literature. There's two kinds of people in this world, two kinds of ways of being in this world, the fool or the righteous one. And in this case, Jesus is telling us, you are either going to be a person who serves God or you're going to be one who serves your possessions. The bottom line is this, and this is what we're going to see. One's relationship to money is not a neutral matter. Now, money's neutral, okay? It's not in itself good or bad, but everybody's relationship to money is not neutral, it cannot be neutral. In fact, your relationship to money actually reveals everything we need to know about you. One's relationship with money reflects the inner person, who they really are. It shows what's inside. Also, one's relationship with money does more than just reflect your soul, it affects your soul. And what I mean by that is depending on which of the two kinds of people you are, money is either going to corrupt you or it's going to grow you. Right? So again, two ways of being in this world, two ways of being when it comes to our possessions. So with all that, I think we are ready to begin looking at the first section, which is verses 19 through 21. Here, Jesus talks about treasure, and he lays down a very important principle. You love what you treasure. So let's take a look at it and see what our Lord has for us. Look with me at the first part of verse 19. Jesus says this. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, loved ones, that is a command. In the Greek, it's in the imperative mood, which means it is not a suggestion. Jesus is commanding us what not to do. And I'll read it again. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. 
Very simple command, but I think it's one that is probably routinely ignored by Christians in wealthy societies. We are such a people. We are fairly well off. Now, we do have to ask before I go further, should we take this command as being absolute? Meaning, does Jesus mean to say that we should not have saving accounts? We shouldn't have any assets or any investments? No. He is speak, because if you think about it, when you read the rest of the Gospels, he speaks favorably of investing in some places. He constantly uses stewardship in parables to describe the faithful Christian life. Furthermore, he said that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets tell us it's a blessing to leave an inheritance to your children and their children. So what that means then is this is a case where Jesus is using hyperbole or purposeful exaggeration. He's done this a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. He's using purposeful exaggeration to make a point. Now, our Lord often does this when he's comparing two things. And Thomas talked a lot about that in his sermon a couple weeks ago. See, when you're supposed to love one thing over another, Jesus sometimes will speak of the other thing as being hated. It's not that you really hate the other thing, but you're supposed to love the first thing so much that in comparison, everything else looks like hate. So for example, you're supposed to love Jesus more than your family. That doesn't mean you hate your family. It means that your love for Jesus should be the driving motive of your life to such a point that in comparison, all other loves aren't even in the same league. That's what this exaggeration is meant to get across. These statements are meant to reorient our minds away from the things that we happen to make into idols. You know, there's a lot of things in this world that are good, but we turn them into idols and we focus on them instead of God. And so Jesus will use statements like this to rattle us out of it and to wake us up. That's what he's doing here. Now, when we get to verse 20, he gives another command. See, verse 19, he tells us what not to do. Verse 20, he tells us what to do. Okay, so in comparison of what we're supposed to do in verse 20 and verse 19, it looks like we're not supposed to store up anything at all. But again, it's in comparison. We're supposed to be storing up treasure in heaven, as we're going to see. If that is your pursuit, it should be your pursuit in such a way that even as you do wise things here, in comparison, it looks like you don't care about this age. That's the point. Exaggeration for the point of comparison. Now, getting back to verse 19. Why, should, why shouldn't you store up treasures on this earth as if this is your, your, your main thing? Jesus tells you why in the rest of verse 19. Look at it again. He says this is a place where, quote, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Simply put, your treasures are not safe in this world. This is a world where moths can eat your fine clothing. This is a world where your valuable coins and your precious trinkets can be rusted up and become worthless. This is a world where some people work harder at stealing other people's stuff than they would have to work if they just got a real job, okay? This is that world. Now, in the ancient world, the world that Jesus is speaking to, fine clothing was a treasure that people valued a lot, and their clothes, it was not manufactured in a factory. It was finely woven, sometimes with gold threads in it. So these people really, really hyped up their clothing. Well, moths and their larvae could destroy expensive clothing. It happened a lot. And as far as things rusting, we know that happens. We've all seen rust. Although it's likely the case that the Greek word here isn't really talking about rust, but it's talking about a kind of insect that destroys a lot of valuable things. Um, 
But we could just pretend, let's just assume it's talking about both. We know things rust, and we know there's a lot of little critters that destroy a lot of the stuff we like down here. Okay, that's just, that's just what happens. Now, in the modern world, our time and place, we worry a lot less about moths and insects and rust. We worry a lot more about markets and high finance. I remember when I first became a teacher in 2002, that was around the time where a whole bunch of teachers about to retire lost their retirements because of the Exxon scandal. Okay, a bunch of, a bunch of people committing fraud at the top levels of Exxon ruined some people's lives. I don't know, some of you will be old enough to remember that. I can't believe I'm talking like that now. Some of you will be old enough to remember this. How many people were broke after the bank closures of 2008? And I'm not talking about people doing stupid, risky stuff with their money. I'm talking about people who simply put money in a retirement account with, or, or in some predictable mutual fund. These were people that were counting on that money. And so they're putting a, a monthly amount in for decades and then because of irresponsible moves made by the masters of high finance, it was all gone. How many people my age are actually going to ever see Social Security? I mean, the government makes you pay 15.3% of your income into the system if you're self-employed. If you have a regular job, your employer has to pay half of it. But the point is the government is still getting the equivalent of 15.3% of what you make um, every single year. That's a lot of money. That's more than a tithe. And yet, imagine paying into that for 40 years, month after month, assuming that when you retire, you'll be taken care of. Yet that whole system is running out of money. And my point is this. An economic system like ours protects your assets no more than ancients could protect their goods from moth and rust. We are still just as vulnerable. Now maybe you'll push back and say, ah, but I bought a house and I've paid it off. And so I own it, and I could pass this on to future generations. And listen, I hope so. I really do. But we live in a state now where a lot of insurance companies will no longer cover houses for wildfires. And this is a state where we deal with wildfires. That means if a wildfire comes and burns the house down that you paid for, not insured. Okay? Not insured. Okay? Also, we live in a society where the government constitutionally could say, we want to build a bridge right where your house is, so we will pull eminent domain, force you out of your house, lowball you, and give you an amount that's probably less than what it's worth, but we'll say that's what it's worth, and guess what? You might not be able to buy a new house with that. And what if our democracy became a dictatorship? And when that happens, the land all gets nationalized. The government owns it, and you're just using it on the state's behalf. And if you think that's far-fetched, I'm telling you, uh, a lot of the, the future leaders on our elite college campuses are swimming in the words of Mao Zedong and Lenin and Marx, and so this isn't so far-fetched. My point is, we don't have the power to truly, and in a foolproof way, protect our treasures on earth from all threats. But let's say... You are one of the lucky ones that keeps all that you've amassed during your life. Can you stop death? No. And guess what? None of it follows you. You can't take any of it with you. Now, if death was the actual end of your existence, maybe this wouldn't matter that much. But death is not the end of your existence. Whether you like it or not or believe it or not, you are going to be alive somewhere a billion years from now. And you're going to be alive forever and ever and ever. So, if you who serve during this short little life, right, you're, you're serving uh, the, the here and now during the short little life, or excuse me, who you serve, God or money, in this short little life determines where you're going to be alive. 
billions and billions and trillions of years. So here's my question. If you can't take any of your wealth and your possessions from this life with you, but you are going to exist somewhere forever afterward, does it make sense to put all your focus and effort into the goods of this life that you are not able to take there? No, no. And I know when I put it this way, then you'd think, yeah, that's pretty stupid. Yet, the vast majority of people alive right now still live with their effort and focus being entirely on the goods of this life. And even sadder, there are a lot of Christians in societies like ours that do the same thing. If It's as if everything Jesus taught us about our priorities and the Lord's Prayer goes in one ear and out the other. And it's not supposed to be that way. That is why he's teaching us this. And listen, it's not just the natural things of the world that could rob you of your stuff. Jesus also mentions thieves. He talks about the thief, quote, breaking in, end quote. Now, the Greek word for breaking in actually means digging in. Their houses were made of uh, mud brick, so thick walls of mud brick. So a thief to break in actually had to dig a hole under the ground to go under your wall and then pop up out of your floor. As I said, they worked harder to steal than they would have had to work if they just got honest jobs. It's crazy. Now, people would go to great lengths to try to protect their stuff from thieves. You might put your things in a box and bury it in the ground. Well, that's where the worms get it. So maybe you don't bury it in the ground, but you just leave it locked in your house. Thieves were experts at picking locks. So the point is, you could not, in a foolproof way, guarantee your stuff. So what's my point in saying all this? The point is this. It's the present evil age. This is the age where there are thieves. This is the age where locusts eat crops, moths destroy clothes, rust erodes precious metals, and even after all that, we die. That's this age. Do you see why Jesus said you must not make your life about storing up treasure here? It makes no sense if you do. You can't keep it. You can't protect it. And you can't take it with you. That is why in the disciples' prayer or the Lord's prayer, we were taught to set our minds first on the return of Christ. Because when that happens, you don't have to worry about thieves and moths. Rather than obsessing over goods in this world, we're praying every day to God to give us our daily bread, our necessities. We don't obsess over it. We leave that to him. And then we receive these things with thanksgiving as we await a better age to come, better things, eternal things. So in light of all that, verse 20 should make a lot of sense. Verse 19 told us not to store up possessions here um, as our main thing. Verse 20 now tells us where to build up our treasure. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. So it's the exact opposite. If this earth is the place where treasure can be lost, then put your effort in building treasure where it can never get lost. And where's that place? Well, Jesus says, heaven. Now, of course, I, I do need to talk about this a bit uh, because when Jesus says heaven here, he's not talking about us being ghosts in heaven forever. The Bible teaches we are gonna be resurrected in immortal bodies and we will live on a new earth and the new Jerusalem will come out of heaven and it comes down from heaven and it unites the new earth with the new heaven and it makes the two into one domain. It'll be a heavenly earth. That's what Jesus is talking about. So this earth will pass away, but a heavenly earth is coming that will never pass away. 
On this earth, we die. On that heavenly earth, there's no more death, no more suffering, no more mourning, and no more curse. On this earth, thieves steal. On that earth, they live in the lake of fire. It's that simple, right? On this earth, things will break down due to moths and rust. On that heavenly earth, nothing breaks down. On this earth, gold and precious things, it slips through our grip. But on that heavenly earth, the streets will be paved with gold. Something so valuable to us now will be under our feet then. On this earth, you will lose all that you earn, especially when you die. On that heavenly earth, you're never going to die. And so those eternal rewards that Jesus gives you, they are yours forever. Listen, as I said, a billion years from now, you're going to be alive somewhere. Well, it is either that heavenly earth or the lake of fire. There are no third options. And what determines that is whether or not you have turned from your sins and bowed your head, heart, and knees to Christ. Now, we're in a church on a Sunday morning, so I'm assuming that most of us listening are those who have turned to Christ. We are those that will live forever and ever on that heavenly earth within the new Jerusalem. So if that's our future... If that's where we're going to be, and if it's just like I described and all I was doing was pulling things from Revelation 21, if that's our future, then why would any of us live as if this life is all we got? Makes no sense. Why would we live for our possessions? Why would we work and work and work for things on this earth and, and for goals that are ultimately perishable? Now, again, I'm not saying we should not be wise with our money and possessions. What I am saying is that if you live for the age to come with your heart absolutely set on it, then in comparison, your dedication to this age will seem like no dedication at all. Again, it's not that you're a fool with your money in this age, because you should be wise. Instead, what I'm saying is a person that's living completely for God will do things that people would say are wise, People would say, oh, that's wise for this age, but we're not doing them for this age. We're doing those wise things in light of the age to come. Now, why? It comes back to what I said and what Jesus is going to show us right now. You love what you treasure. Look at verse 21. He says this. He says, for, and the word for, it's because. He's telling you why he just said what he said. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Simply put, if you love the Lord Jesus and his appearing in the sky, if you love the perfect age that comes when he comes, if you love the resurrection and the new heaven and the new earth, if you love the idea of finally being able to look on God with your own eyes and to view his majesty and his glory, then you will want your treasure to be there. Would you not? All those glorious things, they are in the perfect age to come. And if you love God and those things then you want your treasure to be where those things are. Where your heart is, is where your treasure is. But if instead you love this world, this world where we can't see God, this world where sin is everywhere, but you don't care because this is the only world you can see right now, so it's the only one you care about, then it means your heart is here. You treasure the things of this world and your entire life then will be wrapped up in those things. You're gonna ignore the fact that you're gonna lose it all when you die. You will ignore the fact that you might even lose it before you die. You're going to ignore the fact that a billion years from now, you're going to be somewhere, and if you're living for this world, it won't be with God. And yet, you'll ignore that. It matters not to you. You're going to march proudly towards that lake if you love this world. Now, why would you march proudly towards that lake? Is it because you're irrational or dumb? No. 
No, people march towards that lake because they march towards that which they love. Now, they don't love the idea of the lake of fire, but they love the things that lead you there. That's the point. That's the point. Augustine, the great theologian of the past, was right when he said all humans are lovers. The question is, who and what do we love? If we love ourselves and our sin and this world, then we cannot love God, his holiness, and the world to come. And again, you are going to march towards the one that you love. People march towards the spot that they have placed their affection, where their treasure is. There also is their heart. Now, one thing that some commentaries also pointed out, which is helpful, is that Matthew, writing predominantly to, to Jews, a Jewish audience, was sensitive to some of their cultural sensibilities, and they started limiting their usage of the word God during this time because they didn't want to accidentally take his name in vain. And so sometimes they would substitute the word God with other things. And so what the commentators say is that Matthew is using the word heaven a lot in that way. Like he'll say kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God. They're both the same thing. Well, if that's what's happening here, then Jesus is telling us to store up, when Jesus tells us to store up treasure in heaven, he's telling you store treasure with God. Store up treasure with God. You either store it up with this perishable world or you're storing it up with God who is infinite and everlasting. So if what Jesus is getting at is to store up your treasure with God, and of course we're gonna be with God forever in that perfect world to come, then it means if your treasure's with God, your heart is with God. That's what Jesus is getting at. Again, you march towards what you love most. You love what you treasure. It's that simple. If you love God above all else, then you're gonna treasure God above all else. And if you treasure God above all else, then you're not gonna be living as if your entire purpose is to hoard possessions. If God has your heart, then the things of this perishable world will not have your heart. See, the perishable things of this world, they're not bad in and of themselves, but we are tempted to worship them as idols. We're tempted to find our identity and our security in them. Look, anything on this earth that you are willing to disobey God over, that is something you have made into an idol. It is something that you are worshiping above him because God says one thing, but you're like, no, and you're holding on to whatever that thing is. It doesn't necessarily have to be a possession. It could be anything in this world. That thing then becomes your treasure. It has your heart. That's why King Solomon, 3,000 years ago, gave his son some very important advice in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. He says this, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Guard your heart. Guard it from idolizing the things of this world. Unfortunately, Solomon did not listen to his own advice, but we can. Guard your heart from idolizing the things of this world. Set your heart on God. Treasure him above everything else because, again, what we love most is what we treasure most. Now, you might be thinking, you might be wondering, because it makes sense to wonder this, uh, how can we store up treasure in the world to come? We're not there yet. We live in this world. So how do we build up stuff there? Well, it's actually pretty simple. This life is what the Bible calls a stewardship. We're slaves, but like smart slaves that manage a master's stuff. Jesus is the master. We're his stewards. And so everything that actually is in our hands is his. It's not ours. He gives it to us to manage, for, manage it for him. And if we manage it the way he tells us to, then there comes a day where the, the, the master has a meeting with his accountant 
And if he calls them to account and if everything's right, he gives rewards. That's how it worked in the ancient world. And when those rewards are given, those are actually yours. Okay, it's not the master stuff anymore. He's given you a reward that's yours. So Jesus is saying all that we have, it's his, but we're using it for him and his purposes. And a day is coming where we will stand before him and he will assess how we served him. And at that day, he will then give us stuff based on our faithfulness that actually will be ours forever and ever. Now, it's kind of scary when you think about it. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment, where believers stand before the throne of God and get judged. It's not the same as the great white throne. Okay, we will never stand before that because we are saved. We're justified by grace through faith um, and, and, and all that good stuff. But in addition to our eternal life, the rewards or even some kind of chastisement is figured out at that Bema Seat. One of the most obvious verses about it is 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat or bema seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And he's not talking about unbelievers there. He's talking about believers. So we will stand before Christ. We will give an account. And that day is gonna be the most real day of your life. You may have had days where you thought, oh, this was the most defining day. No, that one is going to be because it will literally determine what your life is gonna be like for all eternity. Assuming that we're saved, right? We're saved. What's our life in salvation going to be like? It comes down to what happens in that meeting, okay? We're stewards right now. We're to serve him faithfully right now in light of that meeting that's to come, okay? And so the sad thing is most Christians live as if that day is not really going to happen. It's not real. Or even if I believe it's real, I'm going to put it to the back of my mind. Look, this life and the possessions that pass through your fingers, they are on loan to you by Jesus. And you are commanded to use it for his purposes before you use it for your own. And if you do, then he says he's gonna reward you with everlasting treasure in the age to come. Exactly what that looks like, I couldn't tell you, but it's gonna be better than anything here, right? That, that, that much is, is, is clear. Now, the Bible tells us right now what it looks like for us to use his stuff in a way that will bring us those future rewards. So how does stuff here transfer to there? Let me give you some examples. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, when he's teaching a similar subject, he says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 33. And you can tell he's talking about the same thing. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes and no moth destroys. So again, he's telling us how you get that treasure in heaven. Talking about the same thing because he's talking about moths and thieves. And so what he's saying is, hold your stuff here with a loose grip. Be generous to those who have less, just as God is generous to you. Give to them on God's behalf, and then God starts filling your heavenly bank account. That's what Jesus is saying. And that never gets lost. But if you live in the opposite way of what Jesus says, well, then his half-brother James, also talking about the same thing, gives us a warning. He's talking about the same thing, but those who don't listen. Here's what he says in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. He says, come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted your clothes, or your, your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. I mean, that's what he says to the person who does not listen and lives for this world. Those who live for this world and use their money unjustly and don't pay what is owed and they lack generosity... They are in for a horrible surprise. But listen, when James blasts rich people like this, it's not the fact that they're rich that gets them in trouble. It's that they love their wealth. They treasure it above God and people. And what are the two great, greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God above everything, and then love your neighbors you love yourself. These people are loving their money above both God and people. And as a result, they're living for their greed. They do exactly what Jesus said not to do. Now, Paul the Apostle is going to tell us how those who are rich can be faithful and build up treasure in heaven. Look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. I mean, pretty much what Paul said there in a couple sentences summarizes everything I just took 30 minutes to say. I mean, it's, it's what I'm saying, exactly. Use your money, whether you are rich or not, for things that are good helping the poor, funding local ministry in your local church, funding missions to the ends of the earth, and stuff like that. And as you do that, you're storing up treasure in the coming age. Why? Because you're showing that you treasure God more than you treasure wealth in this age. So because of that, you obey him and you use the possessions of this age to further his kingdom. In so doing, you're showing that your heart is with God and therefore your treasure will also be with God. He will reward you greatly. So that covers the first part of what Jesus has to say about our attitude toward wealth and possessions. You love what you treasure. Now the second part is gonna build right off of this. If you love what you treasure, then you're going to live for what you love. If you love what you treasure, you're going to live for what you love. If you love God, you will live for God, and you will use your possessions for his glory. But if you love your possessions, you're going to live for them, and you're going to use them for your own glory. Jesus will make this clear in verses 22 and 23. Now, in these verses, he shows you that to live, he's going to show you that you live for what you love. He shows this with an illustration. It's one that confuses people, but this is an illustration. Look at verse 22. He says this. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, people get confused by this. Jesus was just talking about treasure in heaven. Now he's talking about the eye being a lamp and your body being full of light. And people will do some really silly stuff because they don't understand what Jesus is getting at. They start talking about us being born spiritually dead in Adam and therefore we're filled with darkness inside. But then the Holy Spirit regenerates us, makes us born again and fills us with his light. And then our eyes reflect that light as we see things God's way through the scripture and the Holy Spirit and we look away from things of darkness. Now look, all that's biblically true. 
Every single word of that's biblically true, but none of that has anything to do with this text. It has nothing to do with what he's saying. I'll tell you what people do. They come across a verse that they don't know what it means, and so all they do is just take things that the Bible teaches elsewhere and put it there. Listen, if a person is going to preach the word of God, it's important that he does two things when he's studying. First, he needs to pay attention to the context. The verses before this were about treasure in heaven. The verse after this is you can't serve both God and money. This is sandwiched between it. What does that tell you? This is still about money. Okay? He's talking about light, he's talking about lamps and eyes, but this is about money. It's not rocket science. The context makes that clear. But then people will scratch their heads and say, okay, but I can't see immediately how lamp talk has to do, do with money and God. But this is where the second important task of studying the word comes into play. You have to look at the historical context because there's some things that mean nothing to our culture, but they were very normal in their culture. Imagine if I write a bunch of stuff and somebody 500 years from now finds it, and they find me saying, in, you know, like, hey, preaching is no walk in the park. And so they're arguing what park I was walking in. Well, there's a park right there next to the movie theater. It's a walking distance from the church. That must be the park he's talking about. It must have been a crazy park. There might have been dinosaurs there, you know, or whatever. And so they're speculating without even thinking, wait, it's just a figure of speech that means something to us, that it's no walk in the park means it's hard. Okay, it's, it's, it's hard. And so this is one of those things. Talking about an eye and a lamp is one of those things that was, it meant something to them, and that's why Jesus is using it as an illustration. He's using it to make the point about us loving what we treasure and living for what we love. So let me tell you what this illustration means. First, he says the eye is the lamp of the body. Okay, in the ancient world, people tended to think that not so much was it the eye that received light, but the eye emitted its own little bit of light when it was looking at things illuminated by the sunlight. So they spoke of the eyes like being a lamp. That's why in the Old Testament, when people go blind, what does it say? Their eyes were dimmed. It's just how they talked about eyesight back then. That's, that's how they were, they were describing it. So if a person's eyesight goes away, everything looks dark to them, right? It's like the lights are all out. So imagine a house where a lamp goes out. Once the lamp goes out, the house is full of darkness. Well, they were picturing the body in the same way, and a bad eye is like the lamp going out. Whereas if the eye is good, then the lamp is still burning. That's why Jesus says, quote, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, I do need to point something out that the word healthy here in Greek, it's a hard word to translate. It's probably not healthy or good, but we could use those as a synonym. Ultimately, what he's getting at is if you have one eye, a singular eye, a whole eye, now, he's not saying you got to be a pirate. What he means is that your eye or eyes are singularly devoted to one thing. It's the opposite of them being dual where you are now focused and devoted to two things. In other words, this was a way of saying your eye is in the service of one thing rather than two things. It serves one master instead of two. And that sounds very familiar based on what we're going to see in the next verse in verse 24, or the, the next section of this. So if the eye is whole and singular and fully devoted to a single purpose, then it's a healthy or good eye. But in the first part of verse 23, Jesus then tells us this, if you look at it, he says, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if your eye is not singularly devoted to what is good, then it's a bad eye. So again, getting back to the question, why is he talking about eyes and light? 
That's real simple. In Jewish culture, a greedy cheapskate that never wanted, pretty much the stereotypes about us, but the greedy cheapskate that never wanted to share what they had, they were said to have an evil eye. A generous person was said to have a good eye. That is the person that imitates God who is one. So they have a singular eye that also is one. Just as God is one, we're singularly devoted to the one God's purpose, and so we are generous. Okay, and by the way, even today in Jewish circles, it is still common to talk about cheapskates having an evil eye and generous people having a good eye. And this was popular back in the time of Jesus, still popular today, but moreover, it was even popular in the Old Testament. The Old Testament uses this phrasing quite often. Apparently, the Hebrew people have been calling greedy people evil-eyed for a long time. Let me prove it. You're going to see this. You're going to be mind-blown. Okay, Proverbs 23, verse 6, don't eat a stingy person's bread and don't desire his choice food. Let me quote one more. I mean, if you haven't seen it yet, you must be an idiot. No, I'm just kidding. Proverbs 28, 22, a greedy one is in a hurry for wealth. He doesn't know that poverty will come to him. Now, you're looking at that and saying, all right, pastor's gone crazy. He said those verses talk about the evil eye. Well, they do. In both verses, the stingy person in the first verse and the greedy one in the second verse is the Hebrew phrase ra-ayin, ra, evil, wicked, ayin, eyes. So if you read them in a literal way, don't eat an evil-eyed person's bread. Don't desire his choice food. In the second one, an evil-eyed person is in a hurry for wealth. He doesn't know that poverty will come to him. Now, our Bible translators know that will make very little sense to most people born and raised in the United States. And so they say, well, what does it mean? It means stingy or or a cheapskate or a greedy person. So they translate it that way. But the literal words are evil eye. Okay. Now, the same thing happens with good eye. Let me quote uh, Proverbs 22.9. A generous person will be blessed for he shares his food with the poor. Now, again, you might be thinking the same thing. I don't see nothing about an eye there. It says generous. But in Hebrew, the words are tov ayin. Tov meaning good and ayin meaning eye. So the good-eyed person will be blessed for he shares his food with the poor. So coming back full circle, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that if you are a generous person, you are imitating your God. You are singular in focus, just as God is one, and you are singularly devoted to him. And God is generous. So we should imitate him and be generous. That's to have a good or singular eye. The one who is generous is full of light. We are illuminated by the light of God. But if we are stingy and greedy, meaning we hoard our possessions, it's all the same subject here still, then we're nothing like our God. Instead, we're filled with darkness. Instead, we're we're acting like Satan, who was a murderer and liar from the beginning. We are like the thieves and robbers who only come to kill and destroy if we're just hoarding for ourselves. Because we're okay to see others suffer if it doesn't affect our bottom line. As long as we end up with what we want. Well, God makes it clear. He expects more of his people going back to the law that Jesus said he did not come to abolish. Deuteronomy 15, 7, Jesus says, if there's a poor person among you, one of your brothers within any of your city gates in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Okay, so don't be hard-hearted. Don't be tight-fisted. Don't be stingy. 
Okay, because if you're stingy, that's to be filled with darkness. It's to have no pity. Jesus finishes verse 23 by saying this of the person with the bad eye. He says, so if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? In other words, if what is in your heart is greed to where you want to hoard your possessions and live for this world and treasure them over God and not help those in need, Jesus is saying, you have a pretty sick heart. How deep that darkness is. That's what he's saying for the person who lives for this world. So he's saying you're, you're so intent on storing up treasure on earth that you refuse to love your neighbor as yourself. You're so intent on hoarding possessions that you refuse to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. In other words, you are living for what you love. And the way that it is proven is by your greed. You are living in a greedy way. You are choosing greed over God, which is why I titled the sermon, God or Greed. But if God is your treasure, okay, and you love your treasure, then you're going to live for God. And you're going to live for the age to come rather than this age. It will be reflected in what you do. So in Jesus' illustration, you will be one who lives with a good eye, a generous person. You're going to live with a lot of generosity. It means you actually believe what God teaches in Proverbs 19, 17. I think this is something we need to remind ourselves a lot. He says, kindness to the poor or generosity to the poor is a loan to the Lord, and he will give a reward to the lender. Again, you help out the poor, God's taking it as, hey, you're lending to me. I'll repay you. I'll give you a reward. It's amazing. So your life reflects that if you have the good eye. You see all your money is God's money. You see it to be used for God's purposes. And since God is your treasure, you live for his purposes. But again, if you live for your possessions, then you're living for them. And Jesus says, that's greed. It's greed. It's the bad eye. The one who lives for earthly treasure is the evil-eyed person. He is greedy. He's filled with darkness. He's all about himself. Now, Jesus' teaching so far, I think, has been pretty simple and straightforward. He showed us with the first part, you love what you treasure. Now he showed us you live for what you love. Now he's going to conclude in verse 24 with the third part and show us that you're the slave for the one for whom you live. So let's look at verse 24. Jesus just comes out of the gate and says it. He says, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this verse is like a hamburger if that helps us understand it. The first line and the last line are just different ways of saying the same thing. They're like the buns, uh, but the meat is in the middle. So the top bun says no one can serve two masters. The bottom bun then blatantly tells you what he means. You can't serve God and money. Okay, those are the two masters. You can serve one or the other, but not both. And then in the middle, it tells you why this is true. He says either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. So loving money and loving God, they're opposite to each other. And I want you to think about that for a second. Love of money means that you treasure this world. In this world, as I've said, God's invisible. In this world, sin is everywhere. In this world, God's name is is blasphemed. It's not honored as holy. In, In this world, his kingdom's not yet here in its fullness. 
And this world, his will is not being done like it is in heaven. So love of money means that you want it to stay this way. Love of money means that this world is your focus, it's your hope. It it means in your mind, all you have are these 70 to 90 years and, and then it's done. So in that time, hoard as much as you can and use as much of it as you can on yourself. It's not your concern that somebody's poor. It's not your concern that the gospel hasn't reached the ends of the earth and 150,000 people are going to die today and go to hell. It's not your concern that the local church's ministry needs to be funded. Because to you, if you're this person and you live for this world, your bottom line is your possessions and your goals and whatever it is you're living for. And so again, your eye is evil. But the love of God is incompatible with this. That's why you can't serve both. Love of God means you treasure God and you want the perfect age to come. It means you treasure a time that will last forever, not just 70 to 90 years. It means you treasure a reality where God's name is always honored, a reality where his kingdom is here in fullness, a reality where his will is always done on earth as it's done in heaven. Love of God means that this world is not your entire focus. It's not your hope. Instead, your heart longs for a different homeland. Your heart feels like a pilgrim here. It feels like this is only your temporary residence. You know, I've visited some other countries in the last couple years, and I've always enjoyed myself, but I never felt like I was home there because this high desert, even though it seems crummy to some, this is my home. It's my stomping ground. Well, I want you to think about this. This entire world actually technically should feel like we're visiting a foreign kingdom because we live in a world that has a culture and values that are very different than the values and culture of the kingdom we actually belong to. Okay, that's just the reality of it. So we should feel like pilgrims. We should long for our true country. Our true citizenship is on that heavenly earth. We should long for it. We should be homesick for it. We should be lovesick for the sight of our God and just... just tired of not being able to see him, okay, tired of him being invisible to us. And so because of that, then we would not hoard the scraps of this place. Look, when I visit places other than Israel, I don't bring a billion things home. And even Israel, I can only fit what was in that luggage. But we don't bring a billion things from the other country back to our country. We leave them there. Likewise, you can't take the stuff here and bring it there. You can't. You can't take the stuff from this world and bring it into the next. So instead of that, use the things of this world in service for your real country, which is the kingdom of God. That means we can have a good eye and be generous. We could use the money and possessions we have here according to the values of our true citizenship. It means we could help the poor. We could give as much as we possibly can for the spread of the gospel and the funding of local ministry. See, our possessions are not our bottom line, not if we love God. Instead, our possessions are God's goods that he's trusting to us to allocate for his purposes. And if we're faithful and we love him most of all, that's exactly what we will do. See, at the end of the day, our life is not about attaining comfort in this world. Instead, it's about being stretched by God in this world as he prepares us for what's to come. If our heart is where our treasure is, and if Jesus Christ is our treasure then we're not going to stay home from church because it's raining. We're not going to, I mean, there's a lot of things we could bring up there, okay? Or or because we stream. Well, no point to come now. I could just watch church while I'm eating my scrambled eggs. No, not if Christ is number one to us, right? And and it's the way we live in everything. Our time, our money, our comfort, and even our discomfort are all for him, from him, through him, to him, all things, all things. So let me ask you this. 
What is the difference between, or excuse me, let me ask you this. When the differences between serving money and serving God are laid out like this, is there any way you could do both at the same time? No. They are opposite commitments with opposite values. They are in opposition to each other to such a point that Jesus said loving one requires that you hate the other. Again, it's not about hating money. It's about hating the love of money. It's not about hating this world. Instead, it's about not making this world your treasure. Money, in and of itself, as I said, is neutral. It's not good or evil. It's what the human does with it that makes it good or evil. It's what the human thinks about it that makes it either good or evil. In other words, you either place your security in money or you place it in God. And and that's why Jesus, in the Greek, he says you can't serve God and mammon. What he's doing is he's taking money and he's personifying it, like you're pretending it's a God. And the reason why people act like money's a God is not because they like the green paper or the coins, it's because of what money buys. It buys food, clothing, shelter, security, status, comfort, toys, hobbies, and many other things. And so if you believe that money is the source of those things, when the Bible tells us God is the source of those things, you are worshiping money in the place of God and expecting it to provide what only God can provide. Money is just a medium that God uses to give those things. But if you're acting like it comes from money, you've turned that medium into an idol. Okay, God is the one who provides our food and clothing. That's why we pray for our daily bread and our tomorrow's bread. It's God that sustains our lives and will keep us breathing until he's, he's done with what he wants us to do. When people treat money as if it provides only what God can provide, again, they're the slave of the one for whom they live. And, and, and that's what he's showing with this third part. At the end of the day, you should ask yourself this. In your life, is money the middleman or is it the main man? Because there's a difference. If it's the main man and all that you do is centered around money and gaining more of it, then your money is the boss of you. But if money instead is the middleman, then it serves you. You don't serve it. It serves you. But because you serve God, you're using it as it serves you to serve God. That's how it works if money is the middleman. Okay? That, that's, that's how it would work. In that case, you're not serving money. You're serving God. You and all that is in your possession is in service to God. You could have billions of dollars. You could be as rich as Bill Gates or Elon Musk. If all those billions are in submission to God, then you are no slave of money. But if God takes a back seat to money in your life, then it doesn't matter if you only have two pennies. Money is still your God. Okay, so it's not about how much. It's how you think about it. Paul gives us a warning in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses six through 10, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So really what what we're being told is be content with what you have. Serve God faithfully with what you have. Treasure God, treasure the world to come. Live for God, live for the world to come and be a slave to God, and inherit the world to come. Now, this is our call as believers, every single one of us. So may we embrace it. 
Our Lord Jesus saved us by grace alone. And I, and I bring this up again because I don't want people to be confused. We are justified or declared righteous by God by faith alone. We will all inherit eternal life entirely because of what Jesus did and it has nothing to do with what we did. But in addition to that, we are told in at least 25 places in the New Testament that our rewards in heaven, which are in addition to our eternal life, they're going to be based on our faithful service during this present evil age. This is the only time we get to do that kind of service. And so a big part of those rewards have to do with how we use the things that God has put under our stewardship, possessions, time, all of that, your gifts. Um, it's, it's how we're all using that for the Lord. So in light of that, may we love God with all of our hearts. May we see our possessions as his possessions on loan to us that we, we manage on his behalf. At the end of the day, our faithful living and using our stuff for God shows something fundamental about us. It shows that God is our treasure. And you know what's interesting? We should do that for God just because he's God. He's already saved us. But the amazing thing is if you live for him, then in addition to saving you, his heart is warmed by you living for him. And he's like, I'm gonna give them more rewards on top of their salvation. That's what God does for us. When you show that he's your treasure, all he wants to do is shower you with treasures. And so, again, it's a bad trade to pick the things of this world. He loves to bless those who love him. So may we put to death in our hearts all the things that we displace God with. May we repent of all affections in our lives that take our eyes off Jesus. Because where our treasure is, there also our hearts are. And so, again, may God be our treasure. May God own our hearts. Now, if there's any unbeliever here, okay, the first great commandment is to love the Lord your God above everything else. And that's what Jesus fundamentally is about. But because you have not come to him through Christ yet, you cannot say you have loved the Lord your God with all your heart. Instead, you've chased after your own things, whatever it might be. It is still the things of this world. And so you are the person that Jesus is talking about that is filled with darkness and is marching towards the lake of fire. And it is something that has been earned by you because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But let me tell you the good news. God so loved the world that, that God became a man, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, entered his own creation as a man and lived a perfect life, lived a righteous life that earned eternal life. None of us did that. And then what he does is he gives the credit of that righteousness to everyone who believes in him. But what about all that sin we have? He then takes all that sin out of us and puts it in his account and he dies on the cross for us. And so then he drinks the full wrath of the Father for us so that we will never have to pay it. That is why those who believe on Jesus and turn away from their sins are forgiven of every sin and they are declared righteous with the very righteousness of Christ. This is a free gift offered to anyone who will believe. Just turn from your sins Bow your heart to Jesus, believe, surrender to him, and you will be saved. And then you will be a person who has a new heart, hopefully a generous good eye, and that you will live for the world to come because God will be your treasure. So don't walk out of here still in your sin. We're gonna pray, and then we're gonna prepare for the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and yeah, so I'll give a warning after, after I'm done praying. Lord God, 